Hello and welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Disease of Childhood. And as usual this month, we've got a snippet of evidence-based goodness and a couple of clinical questions with their evidence-based answers to get you going. The first question is about tooth staining and doxycycline from Alison Bose, Nigel Curtis and Amanda Gui from Melbourne Children's Hospital down in Australia. The situation is that you have a six-year-old child, a returning traveller from South Africa, and the, uh, the the investigations and the history all fit with a rickettsial infection with serology positive. Doxycycline is a good drug to treat this infection, but it's marked up as having problems with tooth discoloration. And you wonder, how risky is it really? This team went away and looked at two databases, Medline and Embase, and got over a thousand potential hits. They went through these and got four studies that could potentially answer the question in younger children, and they were looking at children less than the age of eight. The studies ranged from 20 patients to 213 patients in size, and assessed a variety of ways of looking at dental discoloration. The background to the problem really is that the tetracycline class of antibiotics, tetracycline itself being the first one, was shown to have some tooth staining when it was used in children when it first came out. Of these studies where they're looking at doxycycline, a different drug, there was just a single possible case and that was described as slight spotted discoloration when looked at by a dentist using a special fluorescent light. Now, this case was in an infant that was under two months old when they were exposed to doxycycline and they were an ex-prem. The group didn't have a control group and what we do know is that premature infants can get this thing called hypoplasia of prematurity which is where the enamel on the teeth are sort of differently grown and that can have the appearance of spottiness or change in coloration anyway. So, Even if that case is real, it's a risk which is low, below 1%, and it's unclear whether that really is an issue or not. Their bottom line? There might be a risk, the evidence is poor, but even if there is, that risk is very low, and you have to balance that against the benefits of using it to treat whatever infection it is that you are considering the doxycycline for. Now, whilst for most people the treatment of rickettsia in returning South African travellers with doxycycline isn't an everyday occurrence, an every week occurrence you'd have thought would be undertaking a lumbar puncture in a small child. Well, Caroline Hart and her pals from the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children came up with a question based around an unusual experience. Well, unusual to them. When they were asked to do a lumbar puncture on a small child, the nurse, who had just moved into the area, asked how they would like the baby situated. Would they like them sitting up or lying down? You wondered, because you'd always done babies lying down curled over, whether there was any data to suggest that one way really was better than the other. So, off they went to the literature and searched through a variety of databases to get 357 different hits they took those and took it down to nine references altogether. Now, some of those they found directly from their electronic search strategy. Two of them they found by going through the references for their papers that they'd included. And one cropped up almost serendipitously as they were searching for something slightly different. It is seriously underrated the way that look plays a part in both evidence-based medicine and life generally. 
sometimes things are just very badly indexed. And you might have to search for 10, 20,000 to find one paper that makes a difference. In the situations where you've got really odd things, not a drug that you can name directly, then it becomes more difficult to be sure that you haven't missed anything. However, the practicalities of life do mean you've got to go with what you can find and then take on board extra bits as you go along. Anyway, of the nine articles that they did eventually get together, and very honestly telling us how they did that, there were two randomised controlled trials, one of 180 and one of 167 children. There was one prospective cohort study, two retrospective cohort studies, and then there were four case control studies that they've included. They were basically around the physiology of lumbar punctures, really, looking at to do with interspinous distances and squishability and things like that. The trials, the two randomised control trials, showed no difference between the lying and sitting positions for doing a lumbar puncture in terms of success at first attempt. But the mean difference, the confidence interval, was anywhere between 8% worse and 18% better. So really too small to be sure that there isn't a meaningful difference between the two. The other trial was of spinal anaesthesia rather than diagnostic lumbar puncture, but you're aiming for the same place, so it seems relevant to include. The way that they did that previously, the operator that was doing the trial, was that the baby was sort of curled over sideways, but instead of lying flat, the table itself had been tipped up to 45 degrees. This position, that was the usual one done in this position, showed a small benefit in terms of improvement to percentage first tap being done but it wasn't really that impressively different and whenever you're dealing with something like this you've got to think about training and practice elements you see if there is a change in positioning of the child you've got to imagine that there's a period of time where you have to retrain all the people that hold the babies to hold them in the right way and then have your operators not being freaked by the fact that the baby looks the wrong direction and they've got to feel a bit differently the physiological style studies do show that the spinal processes widen further and it's meant to be theoretically better to get your LP done in that direction and that would maybe make sense about why they do the majority of spinal anaesthetics with people sat up. There might be lots of other reasons like sinking drugs using gravity to coat the lower nerves or something else that's sort of vaguely sciencey sounding and anaesthetic. But altogether there really isn't very strong evidence as to which position that you should be using. I suppose practically, and the bottom line of this, would be use whichever position it is that you can do. After all, getting the lumbar puncture and having a go at practicing something new for the first time might not be a great idea. There's some physiological evidence to suggest that sitting's better, but really without a sort of coordinated training program and then evaluation, preferably in the setting of a randomised controlled trial, our best answer is to do with what you feel comfortable now, doing with what you feel comfortable and qualitative research may not go together. So on our blog, which is blogs.bmj.com ADC, we've got a number of different series of posts and some of them cover elements of how to read papers, the practice of medicine and research techniques. And there is a bit in there that's all about qualitative research to try to improve people's knowledge and improve your ability to be evidence-based not just in the quantitative field. One of these explanations is about the technique called 
card sorting. You see, sometimes in interview work, there will be a desire to find out about how and why people make decisions. It could be done in lots of ways. For example, there's something called discrete choice experiments, use of scenarios or, or case vignettes, multiple choice questions, or card sorting exercises. Card sorting is a way of thinking about how people can rank things, or group things, or compare things, or that sort of stuff. To take an example, if there's a group looking at how it might be good to get men to engage with healthy activities, split them into small groups. Give those small groups a pack of cards, and on them have different sorts of activities, such as ballet, football, badminton, egg whisking for an industrial-sized woman's institute cake-baking do and then asked to rank those by laying them out on a table from best to worst. And as they were doing that, they were asked, as a small group, to discuss why the cards would be in place there, why they were moving them around and so on. All those conversations were recorded. Now, the data from this card sorting exercise that was used in the qualitative studies wasn't so much where the cards ended up in the end. That, that was interesting, but the real meat was in the audio recording. What was it that the men were debating as they were laying out the cards in different places? What was it that made them change their minds and other people chip in with different views? What did they trade off and what were they considering trading off against each other to say one was better than the other? What did they mean by better, which wasn't well defined? And how did that come out? You see, actions can sometimes speak louder than words, but often... Actions go alongside words, and if you're encouraging people to speak as they're doing the actions, we can understand more about what it is they're saying and why they're saying it. When we're looking in qualitative research for stuff that's more than numbers, words and what they mean can be very important. Now, next month on Archimedes, who knows what we'll face, but I'm sure that it will be meaningful clinical questions that have been sent in by clinicians and their best evidence-based answers. You too could be part of this growing field of academics helping to change clinical practice at the real coalface. All you need to do is get onto the website, find out how to write an Archimedes and get in touch to make sure that the topic hasn't been covered already. Then we will help you and guide you through the process of creating something that your mum can be proud of, that you can get podcasted about, and that will hopefully save much hassle for other doctors practising medicine in their everyday lives. Until next month, thank you for listening.